Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, it's on page 942 of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, as always, nothing has changed. Uh, if you didn't come to church this morning with a Bible, please do grab that one. If you don't own a Bible, well, now you do. That's your Bible. Please take it home and read from it. Romans chapter 5. Friends, even though this is our first Sunday at Old Litchfield, it's actually our last Sunday in Romans for about eight months or so. Uh, we've been going through Romans uh, each week here at Redeeming Grace, and we're going through it in each spring semester until we're done. And so this morning, we'll bid Romans farewell for a while until we say hello to it again next January. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, there's a guest preacher next week, uh, Dr. David Hogg from Phoenix Seminary. In a couple of weeks, uh, we'll resume our expositional series, starting a new series from the Old Testament book of Joshua. And I look forward to that together. I would encourage you even now to begin reading uh, the book of Joshua devotionally, as I encourage you to do with Romans. A great way to do that is, is to try to read through Joshua in one or two or three sittings, big chunks of the text at a time. I think it'll take the average reader about an hour and 42 minutes, so they say, to get through the book of Joshua. So uh, realistically, if you don't have an hour and 42 block of time, take two or three chunks and read through the book. I think you'll, it'll help you discern the shape and the contours and the themes of Joshua as you read the kind of the forest and then before we dig down to see the trees. Friends, one of the architects of America, Benjamin Franklin, uh, once wrote shortly after the Constitution was put in place in 1789, he wrote this, our new Constitution is now established and has a, a, an appearance that, that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Friends, can you imagine a world without taxes? It's hard to do, isn't it? I suppose as long as human governments exist, taxes probably will too. But how about this? Can you imagine a world without the presence of death? If you're young, like a teenager or a college student, I'm guessing you don't think about death a whole lot. You're healthy, you're, you're vibrant, your whole life is seemingly ahead of you. Death probably seems far away. But as you age, as I've aged, it's not uncommon for death to be on the mind more and more. We start to feel our body wearing down. We're exposed to the ravages of this sin-cursed world. The older you get, it seems like the more funerals you attend. And yet whether death is on our mind much or not, the reality is no less certain. Each one of us, unless Jesus returns first, each one of us will take our final breath. There's just no escaping this reality. No, no matter how much, friend, you spend on, on self-improvement, no matter how much you, you diet with the latest fad diet or how much you work out at the gym, no matter how many vitamins you take, no matter how much, you know, age-delaying cream, you know, you, you rub into your face at nighttime, none of those things can stop death's march toward you. And yet, the message of Christianity is that there is one who conquered the grave and secured eternal life for all who trust him. It's what Paul called in Romans 5, 1 to 11 that we looked at last week, the hope of glory. 
And yet, friends, I admit it. Sometimes it's hard to believe that, isn't it? If you've ever watched a loved one or a friend take their final breath, you know what I'm talking about. Death just seems so final. So can we really, truly be confident that through Jesus' death and resurrection, death's grip on humanity has been released? How do you know for sure that one day this march of death will one day halt in its tracks? How can we know if the only two things in this world that are certain are death and taxes, can you really be certain that death will die? Our passage today answers this question with a resounding yes. Let's read together Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the, of the one who, is, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now, friends, if your head is spinning after reading that, welcome to the club. This passage has proven to be notoriously difficult for Christians and and scholars and theologians to to parse through. Uh, So much of Romans is theologically dense, but this passage is really, really dense, isn't it? And yet for all of its theological density and and even unusual syntax, Romans 5, 12 to 21 contains some of the most earth-shatteringly glorious truths in all the Bible. What Paul essentially argues is that if you're a human being, assume that's true of you, if you're a human, you're represented by one of two men. You're represented by one of two kings. Either you're represented by Adam and therefore still in the domain where where sin and death reign through Adam, or you're represented by Jesus and therefore are in the domain where his righteousness and his life reign over you. What king you are united to and represented by makes all the difference in the world. 
Here's the main idea of Romans 5, 12 to 21 that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. Just a a one-sentence summary of this text. Your Christian hope rests on the reality that you're no longer united to King Adam the fallen, but to King Jesus the righteous. Amen. Your Christian hope, my Christian hope, it rests on the firm bedrock reality that you're no longer united, you're no longer connected, you're no longer organically attached to King Adam the fallen, the sinner, but to King Jesus, the righteous and resurrected one. Two points this morning outlining this text. Number one, the tragedy of King Adam. We see that in verses 12 to 14. Number two, the triumph of King Jesus in verses 15 to 21. Friends, I pray that God's word might strengthen your heart this morning with the certainty of hope beyond the grave. If you're in Christ, you're part of the new creation. You're not united to Adam the fallen, but to Christ the righteous, and that means death no longer reigns over you. Rather, you reign over it through him. Number one, the tragedy of King Adam. Friends, the word therefore, right at the beginning of verse 12, is what, is what kind of tips us off to the fact that verses 12 to 21 are thematically connected to verses 1 to 11. Do you see that? That therefore, Paul has just written in verse 11 that, that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now remember, in chapter 5, Paul has now shifted what he's doing in Romans. He has shifted from proving the case for justification by faith alone in Christ to talking about the benefits of grace given to the justified. Being declared righteous through faith in Jesus, friends, means that we as believers enjoy all that Christ has secured for us on the cross. Peace with God, access to his grace, the certain hope of glory, the full confidence as we looked at last week that God is at work even in our sufferings in this age. These are just a few, uh, kind of a, a sampling of the benefits of justification that Paul mentions in verses 1 to 11. And all of it, Paul says, has been won by one man. It's been purchased through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So now, as we move into verses 12 to 24, I think what Paul is doing is kind of, he's zooming the lens back out, right? He's showing us how it is that the work of the one man can really make that much of a difference and why the future of Christians is so secure, why we can be so confident in joy and hope in this life. Paul's answer to this question, why we can be so confident, is this extended comparison between the one man, Adam, and our former attachment to him and the one man, Jesus, and believer's current attachment to him. Paul starts the comparison between Adam and Jesus in verse 12. Look at it together. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Friends, clearly uh, Paul is reflecting on the event that we read earlier in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 where Adam rebelled against God's gracious rule and attempted to rule the way that he wanted to. You know, friends, when God created humanity, Genesis 1 says that God saw that it was what? It was not only good, it was very good. Mankind perfectly reflected the goodness and holiness and love of God. Friends, that means at the beginning... 
there was no sin in the world. God did not create Adam with a sin nature. He had no inner pull, kind of a gravitational pull towards sin like resides in us. He had no sin. Adam possessed in himself the potential to sin, but he wasn't a sinner. God placed Adam and Eve as his image bearers in the garden to rule God's good world for him, to exercise his dominion. You hear that in the very mandate in Genesis, have dominion over the earth, over the created order. That's why I've been calling Adam King Adam, because that's who he was. You might call him the vice king of the world under God's kingship. In their perfect harmony with God and with each other, Adam and Eve enjoyed true life with God. In fact, at the center of the garden was what? You remember? The tree of life, which symbolized all the blessings of communion with God in His very presence. Friends, if Adam had never sinned, he would have enjoyed eternal life with God in Eden and participated in spreading that life and God's glory across the entire cosmos. God's goodness to Adam and Eve was generous and it was abundant. They had all of Eden at their fingertips, tips, his perfect world to enjoy and taste and see. And yet, to test their loyalty, demonstrate their accountability to God, the Lord commanded them not to eat of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil. They could experience it all, except they must submit to God's word regarding the one tree. You know the story. Satan entered the garden, personified as a snake, tempted Eve to eat of the forbidden tree. And instead of listening to God, she listened to the snake. She took and she ate, and then she gave the fruit to Adam, who presumably was, was standing there idly by, passively the whole time, watching the snake destroy his wife. Instead of killing the snake and disposing of him outside the garden, Adam likewise listened to another voice than God's. He saw the opportunity for self-rule and he took it. He jumped at the opportunity. Beloved, it's hard to describe the catastrophic damage of that one singular evil decision that Adam made to grasp God's authority for himself. From the one man's sin, billions, billions have lived under the reign of sin and death. That's what Romans 5.12 is saying. From the one event, Adam's fall into sin, came three consequences. Do you see that? One event, three consequences. What's the event? Sin entered the world through the one man. That's what we've just rehearsed. And friends, the world has literally never been the same. What was the first immediate consequence? On the heels of sin entering into the world came death. In response to Adam's sin, God judged the world because of his sin. He promised hardship to Adam, frustration in work, relational brokenness, marital difficulty, alienation from him and from each other. It's just kind of, again, samples of the outworking of sin and judgment in the world. So severe was the offense of Adam's rebellion against God that God judged Adam's sin through the curse of death. From dust humanity came, and from to dust we will return for all time. Beloved, before the fall, death was no more natural to the world than sin was. You realize that? 
Death is not natural to this world. Death is an imposter. It is an intruder. It's a foreign invader into our world that now reigns over Adam along with sin. And yet, physical death in the world is simply the outworking and the symbol of, of the spiritual death that really matters. Because of Adam's sin, humanity was cut off from the tree of life, the true life found in God alone. As a symptom of this spiritual death, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid from God, right? They hid in their shame behind the trees. And they would not have come out had the Lord not come looking for them. God expelled them from the, from the garden and from, from his presence, never to return. But next comes not just an immediate consequence, a universal consequence. I'll give it in the order it appears. Verse 12 says that death spread to all men. Adam's individual sin had universal effect. Death did not just invade his own life, but the lives of all those who were born as his posterity. Now death reigns over us all. Why? Because verse 12 says all sinned. One event, three consequences. From Adam's sin to Adam's death, to universal sin, or excuse me, to universal death due to universal sin. Now stay with me. Stay with me. Because at this point, we actually have to ask a theological question. What does Paul mean when he writes that death spread to all men because all have sinned? Actually, the answer to this question is super important to Christianity. Okay? What does it mean? Does it simply mean that, that because of Adam's sin, Every one of us as individuals sin because of our own personal sin and then kind of death spread like a universal cancer? Well, yes, in part, there's no question that every one of us are willful participants in Adam's rebellion. We have earned God's judgment by our own actions. We have no one to blame but ourselves. But friends, it's not like it's not like humanity simply kind of copied and repeated Adam's sin and therefore were included in his, in his sinning. We're not born morally neutral and then kind of decide whether to, to follow the light within us or whether to follow Adam's darkness. That's actually an ancient heresy called Pelagianism, okay? I'll give you a book on church history if you want to read more about that and how Augustine uh, countered that if you want to know more about it. But that is not what verse 12 means, Instead, the words, because all sinned, friends, they point to something far more profound and tragic. What's implied at the end of verse 12 is, is that death spread to all men because all men sinned in Adam. In other words, when Adam sinned, all sinned and were included in his sinning. You say, John, what do you mean? What do you mean? That's really confusing. What I'm saying is that when, when God created Adam, okay, again, I know this is, this is deep and dense, okay? We're kind of submerging down into the, to some, some deep theology. So jump in the submarine with me, okay? All right? When God created Adam, he not only made him the father of mankind and the vice king of the universe, as such, he ordained Adam as the representative head of, of all of the human race. Adam represents everyone. The way that God set things up in the beginning is that all of Adam's descendants would be in union with him. God would then deal with all of us as he dealt with Adam. 
So friends, had Adam obeyed God's word and submitted to the singular limitation that God placed on his life in Eden, he not only would have earned eternal life for himself, Adam would have earned eternal life for who? For all of us that followed him. It's like God said to Adam, you've got one shot at the target, man, right? It's from point blank range. You've been given all the training and all the coaching you need to nail that sucker right in the bullseye, but just know that how you shoot will affect everyone for all time, right? If you hit the target, you and everyone will live, but if you willfully miss, if you don't do what I've told you to do, you and everyone who ever lives on earth are going to prison as the just punishment forever, right? No pressure, Adam. Friends, what I'm explaining right now about Adam being our representative is why verse 12 doesn't mention Eve. She sinned first. Yes, Eve sinned, but God had not designated her to be the representative head of us all. It wasn't Queen Eve. It was King Adam who bore that distinction. But I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, show me in the text. Show me in the text. Well, how do we know this is what Paul meant when he said death spread because all sin? Well, context as always, friend, is what? Context is king, okay? Scan your eyes down the page. Verse 15, verse 15. Many died, Paul says. How? Not through their own trespass, but through one man's trespass. Verse 16, it's not the judgment following many trespasses that brought condemnation, but the judgment following one trespass that brought condemnation. Verse 17, it's not the death that death reigned because of the many, but because of the one man and his singular trespass. Verse 18, it's not that condemnation for all people is because of all people's trespasses, but because of the one trespass. Are you getting the picture? Verse 19, the many were made sinners by the one man's disobedience. You see it? When King Adam sinned, we all sinned. When King Adam incurred the penalty of death, we all incurred the penalty. This is what we mean by those 50 cent theological terms, original sin and original death. It doesn't just indicate the origin of sin and guilt, but how it spread to all of us in and through Adam. So friends, that, what that means is that in the very moment of Adam's sin, when he listened to the snake and to his wife and he ate the forbidden fruit, you and me and everyone who were subsequently in Adam, we share equally in Adam's disobedience and guilt. We inherited his condemnation. His penalty is our penalty. The death that he deserves, we do too, right? Every one of us is born guilty before God. See, that's not fair. That doesn't seem fair at all. I don't want to be represented by someone. I want to stand on my own. Western individualism, rugged individualism, right? Well, you like it when it helps you, right? You don't mind being represented in our representative government by your senator or by a congressman. Now, you may not like his or her politics, but the structure of such, you don't mind being represented. You feel like that does you good in this democracy. You don't mind the fact that when a parent dies, you were represented, you were represented by him or her so that his wealth is left to you when he dies. What's yours or his was, is now yours. You like it when it helps, but we don't like it 
when it goes against us. And while that may not sound fair to you, friends, let's be honest. You and I know from our own experience and just from the experience of living life in this world how sinful not only Adam was, but how sinful you are and how sinful I am. And everyone else living around us. Adam in the beginning did not feel the inner pull towards sin, but you do, right? No one has to teach you how to sin. You're creative in it sometimes, aren't you? So am I. Parents, you feel me here about our kids, right? I never cease to be amazed by how instinctive sin is to my children. Like, who taught them that? Not me. Must have been her. No, no. It's just part of their sin nature. On Friday, I walked into the house around dinner time, and, and, and Canaan had taken his entire toy bin and just dumped it out in the middle of the kitchen. Like, and there's just dozens of toys spread all across. And I asked him, Canaan, did you turn your toy bin over? And he looked at me with the gall and boldness, looked right in my eyes and said, no. <laughs> I said, buddy, don't lie to me. Did you turn your toy bin over? And I saw that lower lip start to go like this. No. I gave him three more chances to redeem himself. No, no, no. Finally, I said, Canaan, you're lying, aren't you? Yes. You just... Who taught him to lie? The answer is no one. Sin is as natural as air. It's wrapped its tentacles around each one of us. We're not born morally neutral. We're born sinful. We're born dead on arrival. Friends, the reality is that we don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Or as the New England primer put it, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Because we're connected to King Adam, our fallen representative. Each one of us is under sin's dominion in our sin nature and sin's penalty and inherited guilt. We all deserve death. We will die physically. And apart from God's grace in Christ, we would have gladly lived in spiritual death until it took us all the way to hell. Now, before I make some application, look again at verse 12. Okay, Look again at verse 12. At the end of verse 12, You'd, you'd expect Paul to finish the comparison, wouldn't you? Just as sin came and then death, and then death spread because all sin, so also through one man's righteousness came life and yada, 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 yada. That's what you expect. Well, well Paul breaks it off, doesn't he? He's going to eventually tie the bow of that comparison in verse 18. But here he kind of goes on a rabbit trail with a different kind of thought, kind of a, a parenthesis in the, in the flow of the argument. Look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Just like he does so often in Romans, Paul is answering an implied objection. Uh, okay, Paul. Okay, Paul, you say that sin and death reign from Adam on, but how can, can humanity, before God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, how can they sin if there is no law? There's no actual specific law to break, right? It's an objection on a very technical understanding of the Scripture. I get it. But it, it is kind of a logical question. God gave Adam a command. Adam broke it. His trespass kind of foreshadowed Sinai. God gave Israel 
commands, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, and immediately Israel began to break even the first one. But in between, in between Adam and Moses, there was no kind of clear law command given to the world. Well, in verse 13, Paul acknowledges that. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Well, clearly he doesn't mean, friends, that there's no such thing as a category of sin or guilt in between Adam and Moses. Rather, he means that that sin in this time period didn't always have kind of one-to-one violations of God's law. It's still sin, even if there's no obvious law to break. It's like be us, you know, out in the country, driving our cars so fast and reckless that we put others' life in danger, even where there's no speed limit signs posted. Okay? People still rebelled against God by violating His moral norms. They worshipped and served idols of their own make, making rather than worshipping and serving God. Paul writes in verse 14, this, despite the fact that there's no law, death reigned still from Adam to Moses. The absence of law did not make a difference. Sin and death still hold sway. Friends, just read the book of Genesis. Just read the book of Genesis. Listen to my sermons a couple years ago on Genesis. There's no question that sin and death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though there's no law. All continued to sin because all are sinners. Friends, united to King Adam the fallen, we are doomed. We have no hope. We are guilty. We are lost and ruined by the fall. Let me give you a few applications to think about this morning from this part of the text. Friends, the fact that in Adam we all are wretched, guilty sinners, this fact should deeply humble us. We have nothing in and of ourselves to offer to God. If that was not obvious from the first part of Romans, I hope it is now, you have no inherent, intrinsic good in you. Friends, your only hope, my only hope is to realize our spiritual nakedness and come to Him for dress, as we just sang. To realize our spiritual helplessness and come to Him for His grace and forgiveness. Friends, when the doctrine of original sin begins to seep into your spiritual pores, it will start attacking your pride. It will, when you know the depths of your depravity. You're no better than anyone else. You may think you're something because of your spiritual knowledge, your spiritual gifts, or your family history, or your wealth, or your looks, or your athletic, athletic talent, or your position at work, your status in society. But in Adam, friends, you're the same as the next guy. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. This doctrine should humble us. Understanding the doctrine of original sin also helps us make sense of the world, doesn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. All current evil and wickedness is is just a repackaging of Eden. We listen to other voices. We crave self-rule. We want autonomy from God. And so sin and death reign ever stronger in the world. The doctrine of original sin helps us to make sense of why people would would kill pre-born babies in the name of sexual freedom. Why men and women would forsake the love of their spouse for illicit images on a screen. Why today, recent studies show that one in five teens, one in five, are identifying as LGBTQ. 
why someone would revolt against their God-given biology in the name of personal expression, why corporations would sell their corporate soul to, to evil to make a buck. It's tragic, it's sad, but it all makes sense because of original sin. Nothing in this world should surprise you, friend. After all, you know yourself in your own sin. Number three, understanding original sin prepares you to understand and enjoy the gospel. It understands you to, to or prepares you, excuse me, to understand and enjoy the gospel. At the end of verse 14, Paul writes that Adam was a type of the one to come. Friends, that word type there means a kind of a pattern or a mold. In the Old Testament and in the story of redemption, what the Lord did was he ordained certain persons and events and institutions to be fulfilled or to point the way in a deeper and more climactic way to be fulfilled in New Testament persons, events, and institutions. We rehearsed this idea in the song this morning, right? Christ, the true and better. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Isaac, Moses, David. He's the type, the pattern, the mold. Excuse me, those things are the type, the pattern, the mold. Christ is the anti-type. He's the fulfiller, the substance that's previewed by those shadows. In other words, friends, in the very beginning, by choosing King Adam to represent all humanity, in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, what God was doing was he was previewing the pattern by which he would save us. We fell through the one man. We're going to be saved through the one man. The tragedy of King Adam's fall. Number two, the triumph of King Jesus the righteous. The tragedy of King Adam the fallen, the triumph of King Jesus the righteous. You know, friends, honestly, when I stopped for a moment and I turned my eyes uh, to verse 15 last night as I was writing this sermon, and I read the beginning of verse 15, tears began to well up on the edges of my eyes when I, when I stopped writing about the fall. And I looked down and I saw verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. Hallelujah! The gift is not like the trespass. When humanity was sinking down into the abyss of sin and death with no hope of making it out, down reached the strong hand of Jesus and lifted us out. Just pause there for a moment. The gift of salvation in Christ is nothing like Adam's trespass. How so? Well, think about it. God's gift of salvation in Christ is available to you because of Jesus' willing self-sacrifice. Adam... Adam and his trespass and all that followed were, were the result of Adam's willing self-rule. It's totally different. Friends, throughout this section, the way in which kind of Paul shows Adam as a type of Christ in these verses is, is to contrast Adam and Jesus. I love what John Stott wrote. He said, how can the Lord of glory be likened to the man of shame, the savior to the sinner, the giver of life to the broker of death? How indeed? Well, clearly, the typological connection between Adam and Jesus is one of difference, not similarity. Paul is saying, here's who King Adam is, right? Here's the result of his work, but praise be to God, that's not like Jesus. That's not who he is. Here's who Jesus is, and here's his work. Adam brought death. Jesus brought life. 
Throughout this section, Paul draws our attention to the superiority of Jesus to Adam with the words, much more. Do you see that in verse 15? But the gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Sin and death are strong, but they are no match for the grace of God in Christ. For those of you who know the Lord of the Rings, uh, you'll, you'll remember Tolkien's image of the two towers. I mean, it's like the whole middle book, right? These towers symbolize Sauron's death grip, his evil empire over Middle Earth. But if you've seen the movie or if you read the books, remember that one time when, when along came the Ents. Remember the Ents, the, the giant tree creatures, the walking tree giants, however you want to say it. And they got so angry at Sauron and Saruman in the tower there that they broke the dam and they released the river and that tower of evil at Isengard just crumbled in a moment. Remember that? The waters overflowed and the tower of evil crumbled. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. When God sent his son to redeem us, the twin towers of sin and death that looked so impenetrable that it stood for millennia they were just overrun easily by the abounding torrent of God's gift of grace in Christ. The gift of God's grace abounded over the trespass. As John Bunyan put it in his, his book title, his, his autobiography, it's grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Once Paul gets going, he just can't stop. He turns in verse 16 for, from kind of the, the difference in the nature of, of the two men's work to the difference in the results and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Again, one sin did massive damage. One grace gift in Christ undoes it all. Think about this, this theological comparison Paul makes. God's judgment for all time follows one sin. But God's gift of salvation in Christ follows untold trillions of trespasses and still conquers them all. It's just incredible. Verse 17 is the kind of the grounds for verse 16. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more. Again, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Friends, what is the evidence that all are condemned through Adam and all are righteous in Christ? Show it to me. What's the evidence? Well, it's the reign of death. It's the reign of death over all people in Adam. And what you might expect Paul to say is something like this. And then it, for those in Christ, it's the reign of life over those who receive God's free gift. But that's not what he says, is it? Look at your text. Look at verse 17. He says that in contrast to the reign of death is the reign of who? Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of life or of righteousness. Friends, he's talking about the reign of Christians. He's talking about your reign as a believer and my reign. Again, another clue that Paul has in mind, our connection to our covenant head, our union with Christ. When we were connected to Adam, we were connected to his defeat 
and therefore to that defeat's results for all time, right? The judgment and condemnation. But now because of Christ, we who believe are united by faith to all that Jesus has won. That means, brothers and sisters, you this morning, April 30th, 2023, here at Old Litchfield, you share King Jesus' reign over sin and death. You are kings and queens with him once again, destined to rule the world for God forever. You're participants with Jesus and his reign over everything. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you did too. Spiritually at your conversion and physically on the last day when he returns. When Jesus, friends, placed death like a defeated enemy under his heel. You, Christian brother, you, Christian sister, share in his triumph. Although it may not seem like it yet, I know it doesn't feel like that, but friends, it's the reality. Sin and death are under your heel too, already in part, one day in full. Since power is broken, it's penalty, it's paid, and one day its presence will be chased away by the light of God's glory. Friends, do you realize the day is coming? There's going to be no more cemeteries in the world. Mortuaries and crematoriums will be a non-thing. A distant memory of a bygone era. You and all God's people will reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. So how's that for hope this morning? So much of this passage in this deep theology, doesn't have like a specific application given to us, right? Rather, I think the Holy Spirit in this passage is just kind of like bombarding our affections with the, the kind of the, 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 these grenades of God's kindness and love and, and power in Christ, bombarding our hearts. He just wants us to be overwhelmed by his love and respond with our highest worship and praise for his grace. He wants us to live every day, friends, not in the doldrums, but with confident joy and confident expectation and hope because of the reign of Jesus. I think verses 18 to 19 might just be kind of the central heart of the passage. In verse 18, Paul finally rounds off the thought that he began in verse 12. Do you see that? When he, verse 12, he began to compare Adam to Jesus he rounds it off in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Friends, don't stress out about Paul's use of all men there. He's not a universalist, right? He's not saying that Christ's death leads to justification for all men who've ever lived. He, cl he clearly means in this context, all men who belong to Jesus, all men who repent and believe. These are the ones who receive justification in life. What is the one act of righteousness? What is it? Well, clearly Paul has in mind Jesus' death on the cross. Salvation does not come, friends, through multiple acts of righteousness done by us, but by one act of righteousness done by him. And then all the benefits of that one act are credited to us by faith, imputed to us. Our sin in Adam imputed to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness, his perfect record imputed to us. Paul explains it further in verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 
Now this, this contrast is put in the starkest relief possible. Disobedience from Adam, obedience through Christ. Through his disobedience, the many were made sinners. Through the obedience of the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. Friends, I, I think the, the cross is still in view when it's talking about obedience here. Remember Philippians 2. Christ became obedient to the death of the cross. But friends, Jesus' obedience to death, it was the culmination of a lifetime of flawless obedience. Theologians sometimes call Jesus' perfect life his active obedience. In his death on the cross, his passive obedience. The whole path from Jesus' cradle to the grave and into glory was one of perfect obedience and submission to the Father. A second Adam walked the earth whose blameless life would break the curse. His death would set us free to live with him eternally. The good news Paul is trumpeting is that despite the devastation wrought by King Adam in the, in the beginning, despite that, King Jesus has overturned it all for those in Adam's race who come to him by faith. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. On behalf of all who humbly embrace his work, he died on the cross then to satisfy God's wrath for the sins of those in Adam's race who turned their lives over to him. He plunged their sins down to the hell they deserve. And then he rose up from the dead so that, he might, so that we too might rise up along with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you were declared to be righteous. That is the parallel. What does this mean practically? Well, it means, friends, that just as Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, both in our status before God and in an actual, in our, in our, in our sinful nature, so Jesus' obedience makes us righteous both in our status now and in an actuality one day. Paul's just, again, bubbling over to say, if you turn from your, your sin and you come to Jesus by faith, what God does is he severs he severs your attachment to Adam and he connects you to Jesus, the righteous, to all the life-giving benefits of the second Adam. You're no longer part of the old humanity under Adam. Now you're part of the new humanity in Christ. You're no longer part of the old man, the old creation. Now you're part of the new creation destined for glory. All you have to do is release your grip on sin. Say no to it. Make a break from it. Turn from it. Repent of it. Ask God to forgive it on the basis of Jesus' death in your place. And then trust in Jesus to save you, to rescue from the consequences of Adam's fall and give you all the benefits that he has won. Friends, you can do that today. You don't have to pray a, a special prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle, thank goodness, right? Or do, or do penance. You simply let your heart turn toward Jesus in reliance upon him to save you. And you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and King of all and you follow him with your life. We're almost done. In verses 20 to 21, Paul swings back to the law. Probably did it kind of scratch the itch of the Jewish readers in Rome. If sin reigned before the law, then what's the purpose of the law? Well, Paul answers, it's not it's not to restrain sin. Paul says the purpose of the law is just the opposite. It came to increase the trespasses. 
The law came to increase the gravity and the number of our sins. It came to show us how serious sin is and how incapable, incapable we are of a righteousness on our own. So that as sin increased, his grace might abound all the more. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. The law threatened to crush us, but Jesus came and he fulfilled the law and then he bore the law's curse on the cross so that we might recognize his kindness and fall at his feet in praise. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Sin was strong. Grace is stronger. Friends, living in the triumph of King Jesus should fill your heart with assurance this morning. It should fill your heart with hope. It should fill your heart with love. I know how densely theological this sermon has been. I felt it as I studied and as I am preaching it. But friends, this, these truths that we've been setting together, they're not just meant to fill our minds and our heads and just kind of stay there. They're meant to deepen our love for Jesus and for all that he's done for us. Friends, I hope you'll leave this place singing this morning that King Jesus picked up the sword that Adam dropped and he went to war on evil and death and and Satan and he conquered. And by grace, you share in his victory. You can pick up your sword and wage war on your sin too because he's already conquered it. He's already severed the power and, and, and its penalty. And one day he will sever its presence detach it from you from all eternity. It's not just that that Jesus merely takes us back to Eden. It's not just that he restores what Adam forfeited. It is far better. Paul's point over and over again is that the abundance and overflowing of grace doesn't just mean that, that Jesus gives you a clean slate with God. He actually changes our status to match our king's status. We have the banner of his righteousness flying over our lives because Jesus triumphed. I hope this text has once again reminded us that our salvation doesn't rest on our own shoulders, not on our own performance, not on our own church attendance, not on how often we have our devotions, none of that. It rests on the shoulders of the resurrected king. Jesus did it all. Your Christian hope rests on the reality that you're no longer united to King Adam the fallen, but to King Jesus the righteous. And so we sing, all glory be to Christ our King. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise your name this morning as our second Adam, our conquering King, the one triumphant over sin and death through your death on the cross and your mighty resurrection from the grave. Oh, Father, weave this this gospel story deep into our hearts. Help us to to believe it by faith in our our doubts and our darkness when when we're, we're sad because of the sorrows of this age. Remind us of the glorious hope, how certain it is, how sure it is, because we're no longer connected to Adam, but to King Jesus. We pray all of this in his name, amen.